the heart of the teachings is to free the mind and to free the heart from the habits, the long-established habits we have of suffering, the habits of mind, of greed and of envy, of anger and hatred and fear. So all the practices we do, the practices of generosity, of kindness, of compassion, of concentration, of insight, of mindfulness, all of the practices are in the service of this mind of freedom. The unique aspect of the Buddhist teachings is that they both begin and end with wisdom. It's where we start and where we end. Wisdom is not a question of belief, and it's not a question of dogma. Our whole spiritual path rests on our own investigation of what is true. That's the meaning of Dharma, the truth, the law, the way things are. So the clear seeing of wisdom comes from our own investigating power of mind. It's this which illuminates the Dharma. It illuminates the truth. So the question tonight that I'd like to consider is how we can train in wisdom. How do we train ourselves in wisdom? In one very far-reaching aspect, with tremendous ramification and implication, we begin to develop wisdom through a careful seeing and observation and exploration of the truth of change, of impermanence, the direct experience of that. Now what's odd about this is that on the intellectual level we all know that things change. You don't have to come to Spirit Rock to find that out. We go up to anybody on the streets of Woodacre, (laughs) the street of Woodacre, (laughs) 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 or San Francisco or wherever, and ask them, do things change? Of course, everybody knows things change. But what's interesting is we know it intellectually, we know it conceptually, but we're not living that truth. Somehow we haven't embodied it fully, because if we really knew it, if we really understood it, we would not cling to anything. There would be no attachment. And so somehow we have to practice in such a way that our understanding of impermanence of change becomes alive within us. We need to make that wisdom very real. And when we do, when we do see it clearly and deeply, then the heart and mind relax. We let go of a lot of tension, a lot of struggle. We let go of a major part of our suffering. We can see this very clearly in the relationship we have to our changing bodies. If we're attached to them staying a certain way, (laughs) we suffer. (laughs) Because they will change, whether they change through accidents, 
through disease, through illness, through simply getting older. It's very different perspective and also very difficult to see, to really know deeply that these changes are not mistakes. These changes are the truth. It's the nature. It's the dharma. It's the law. It's how things happen. And it happens to everyone. Some years ago, uh, I was teaching, actually it was just before the Spirit Rock course, I was teaching a retreat in New Mexico in the mountains. And the very last day of the retreat, this was in the wilderness, uh, we were going for a hike up the river, and it had just rained, so the rocks were quite slippery. And in walking back to the lodge, I slipped on a rock, and I came down very hard. I hyperextended my knee, and I knew something was not good. And then that night, it was the closing night of the retreat, I gave a Dharma talk, and I gave it sitting cross-legged. And I had the thought, sit in the chair, Joseph, but I overrode the thought. I couldn't get up. I mean, I had really done some some damage. And it was very interesting for me to watch my mind in that situation. I was right at that juncture where I could saw that I could go in one of two directions. A very familiar direction would have been to get caught in a lot of self-judgment. Why wasn't I paying more attention, you know, when I was walking? A lot of worry. I was in anticipating a whole schedule of teaching that summer in Europe. You know, how was I going to manage without being able to bend my knee? And so there's a whole avenue of anxiety, so that route. And the other route was things happen. This is just what happens if we're alive. By some miracle, I chose the latter And it was really fine. It was just, okay, this is what happened. Let me deal with it. And it reflected two basic laws that if we can remember, really, really serve us well. These are two great laws of life. First one being, if it's not one thing, it's another. If it's not the knee, it's the back. And if it's not the back, we have a cold. And There's always something. This is not a mistake. This is what happens. This is the truth of change. The other great law of life, which is actually quite sobering, but brings the truth of this uh, to us very strongly, anything can happen anytime. You know, we're going along and we're so confident in the way our life is unfolding and what's going to happen, but really anything can happen anytime. I think if we let that in, it really changes the way we're relating to the present moment. Seeing impermanence deeply, really feeling it, living it, deconditions the very strong habit pattern we have of clinging, of attachment, of grasping. 
And so it's the clear seeing of impermanence that is really the doorway to freedom. We can apply this in so many ways, both in our lives and in our meditation practice. Now, when I think back to my very early years of practice when I was in India, it was like 30 years ago, 35 years ago, but I remember very clearly going through long periods you know, where I would be discouraged and depressed and, you know, this, the difficulties that one has in trying to train the mind. And at one point in the bout of some depression about how I was doing and my progress and all that, you know, lost in that feeling, I remember saying to myself, Joseph, in six months from now, will you even remember that you were feeling this way? Not only six months, five months, four months, two months, two weeks, one week. You know, by extrapolating over time and looking back, it just helped me realize that that emotion that I was so involved in and so caught in and was so burdensome is itself just another passing state. You know, it's there for some time and then it goes. When we remember that, even in the midst of feeling whatever we're feeling. But when we really know, we have the wisdom of understanding, this is going to change. It frees the heart. We relax. What's so amazing about the seductive power of the world is that when we look back at our experience, it's so easy to see the dreamlike nature of it all. And when you look back to last year, or last month, or last week, or yesterday, or this morning, <laughs> just think of your worst moment on this retreat. You know, just pain, boredom, restlessness, multiple hindrance attack, couldn't wait to get out. <laughs> you know, just see if you can recreate for a moment. <laughs> and then maybe think of your best moment, you know, where the mind was concentrated and calm and maybe some moments of peace. But in both of those situations, where are those moments now? Where are those experiences now? Now, the very worst and the very best and everything in between it's all this dreamlike quality of things already gone, already past. But the unusual phenomena of our lives is that even as we know this about our own past experience, this is not esoteric understanding. We know this when we look back, yet when we look ahead, to what's coming up, we're continually dazzled by the array of possibilities of what's going to make us happy. You know, the next thing that we want to do. And so we're always looking forward. We're anticipating as if the next hit of experience is somehow going to bring resolution in our lives, bring us happiness. And it could be the thoughts now, you know, of the next retreat or <laughs> not the next retreat. 
or the next vacation, you know, or next relationship, the next meal. On, on a retreat like this, that same tendency of looking forward, it can come right down even to anticipation of the next breath. Instead of being totally in the moment, just with the breath as it is, it's like that forward anticipation as if somehow the next one will do for us what this one is not doing. (laughs) Why? Because we know. You know, have you given any thought to the first thing you're going to do when you leave the retreat? You know, you're, <laughs> you know, meeting with your partner, reconnecting, or you know, sleeping in your own bed, or having an ice cream sundae, or whatever it is. We keep reaching forward, looking forward, anticipating the next bit of experience as if somehow that's going to do it for us, even though we know that it's all part of this passing show that will become dreamlike in its own time. So why do we stay so engaged in that? Not only that, not only is everything passing, but you've probably experienced this as well, as we get older, it seems as if things are passing by ever more quickly. You know, there was one, I forget who said it, but it was some, some woman over 55 who said that when she turned 55, it seemed like breakfast happened every 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, isn't it like that? (laughs) So what are we doing with our lives? The great paradox of our spiritual life is that as objects of desire, or as objects of wanting, all of these changing experiences leave us unfulfilled. No matter what it is that we want and what it is that we get, they always leave us unfulfilled precisely because they're changing, they're disappearing, they don't last. And yet the very same experiences as objects of awareness as objects of mindfulness, become the vehicle for our awakening. So this is a very important point here. It means that in the path of awakening, it's not that we need or even could withdraw from experience. It's not a pulling back from experience. Rather, it's a learning to not hold on. That's really the difference... And there's a slight confusion here uh, because of words in the English language. Something that gets confused often, sometimes in Buddhist teachings, the word that's used at different times is the development of detachment. You know, that we should become detached from experience. But detached, I think, is not the right word. Detached implies a withdrawal. I think the appropriate word, and one that's much more meaningful 
for us in our life is non-attachment. It's not detached. It's non-attachment. Can we be fully there, fully in the moment, without the added energy of holding on, of grasping, of being attached? So how can we develop this wisdom, this insight into impermanence so that it settles into us deeply, so we're living it, we're embodying it. This wisdom of impermanence, the truth of impermanence, arises in several different ways. First, through the meditation practice itself, as the mindfulness and concentration get stronger and more refined, we begin to perceive things on a increasingly subtle level, we begin to see for ourselves the momentariness of things arising. We see that what appears fixed and solid, when we're undistracted, when we're concentrated, these things are not fixed and solid at all. You hear the sound of the bell. It's not one thing. Just... not just once. There's a vibration there. There's a flow. With the breath, the breath is not one thing. The breath is a flow of microscopic sensations. As we get more uh, concentrated and attentive, we begin to see that it's not solid at all. Or the pain that we may be feeling in the body, the body's not solid. The body's an energy field of changing sensations. It's like looking at ordinary objects through a high-power microscope. You know, when we look at anything, we could look at the bell or anything at all, under a high-power microscope, that solid, fixed reality is revealed as being something entirely different that's not solid at all. We see the changing nature more clearly. Imagine going to the movies really good movie, totally engaged, caught up, engaged in the story with all kinds of emotions that are arising, really in it. And of course, that's the sign of a good movie. Well, then if for a moment you happen to glance up and you see the beam of light that's being projected on the screen, does it give you pause? Everything that you thought was happening on the screen and in which we're so involved is not really happening at all. Nobody's getting chased. Nobody's being born. Nobody's dying. Nobody's falling in love. Really, all that's happening is like a dance, I don't know, dance of light, colored light, you know, on the screen. It's not that we don't experience the movie of our lives, the drama, the story of our lives. But if we see it on a deeper level, if we're not totally caught up, totally engaged in the story of it, and we see it on a deeper, more profound level, then we can live our life 
with a lot less reactivity and a lot less suffering. The experience of the freedom that comes out of seeing impermanence can also come on more ordinary levels of perception. Not only, you know, where we see the momentary microscopic level in which our usual conventional reality begins to dissolve, which is very powerful to have taste of that, but even when we notice change on a more ordinary level, it's tremendously liberating. Just as an experiment, next time you walk down the hill to the dining room, or even walk out of the hall after the talk, or we'll just take that as an example, pay attention to your experience as you start the walk down the hill, and you feel the body, you feel the movement, you feel the air, you feel different sensations of the body, aware of thoughts. And just what happens, notice what happens to each of those experiences as you proceed down the hill. By the time you get to the dining room, what happened to the experiences that were at the top of the hill? They are completely gone. Every moment, experience is disappearing, new ones arising, disappearing, in the most ordinary way. Our life, this flow of experience is like water over a waterfall. It keeps on changing, passing away, new things coming. The truth of this is so ordinary, it's so obvious that we've stopped paying attention to it. And so we just get caught up in the drama, in the anticipation, in the story, and we're not seeing the truth that is so clearly there in front of us. This moment-to-moment change of what is actually happening. And by not paying attention to this very ordinary aspect of our lives, we are missing the opportunity to deepen our direct experience of change, and we miss the opportunity to practice the mind of not clinging. So we need to wake up to the obvious. We need to see what's right there in front of us. Ajahn Chah, who I think Sharon mentioned the other night, this wonderful Thai master who died some years ago, he expressed it very simply. He said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. Again, letting go does not mean detachment. It doesn't mean withdrawal. It means not holding on. Because if we hold on to that which is changing, what's the result? Careful observation of impermanence in some very obvious ways in our lives 
can really jolt us out of a sense of complacency in which we often live, as if things are going to just go on as they always have been. There are some very powerful reflections that can startle us into wakefulness if we take the time to consider them. The first of them is the most obvious truth. The end of birth is death. That our life is just running out. Our life is getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. Of course, also as we get older, this this truth becomes more obvious, but it's equally true for all of us. But it's so strange, because often our awareness of death, I mean, we, we all know that death comes, but for many of us, it's always other people who seem to be dying. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, that's too bad. <laughs> but how often do we really consider the fact that we're dying? We're both dying moment to moment. Our life is getting shorter. And in fact, death can come at any moment. Imagine, just as an exercise, being on your deathbed. Okay, and for the... In the context of the way we practice, let's assume that it is in bed. Okay, we're in bed, dying, nice and comfortable. (laughs) But could we imagine, could we imagine actually just try to put ourselves in a situation where we are actually dying? And what would that be like? You know, in that moment as we imagine it, what would we most be holding on to? Most be grasping, most not want to let, not wanting to let go. So just as an exercise to really see, okay, well, where are our attachments? Because the whole process of dying and of living, and the whole practice of our retreat, is learning the freedom that comes from letting go, from not holding on. As we contemplate this truth that the end of birth is death and really reflect on it and see it that it's true for ourselves and it's true for the people that we're closest to and love the most, this is the Dharma. This is how things are. It's not a mistake. Do we let it in? Can we really see the truth of it and feel it? There are two great examples, of of course of many, of people who brought tremendous wisdom to their death. And so I just want to read uh, a little bit. This This is, was written by a friend of Henry David Thoreau, who, if you haven't read him since high school, I recommend him because he's, He's really wonderful and there's great wisdom in his writings and a great humanity. 
he died very young. He died in his 40s. I think he was he had TB or something. So this is a friend writing about his death. And there's an amazing wisdom here. He said, Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. Very often I've heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health, the mind always conforming to the condition of the body. And there's mindfulness. The thought of death, he said, could not begin to trouble him. One friend, as if, we, as if by way of consolation, said to him, Well, Mr. Thoreau, we must all go. Henry replied, When I was a very little boy, I learned that I must die. And I set that down. So, of course, I am not disappointed now. Death is as near to you as it is to me. Some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death, but with little satisfaction to themselves. When his Aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know we had ever quarreled, Aunt. (laughs) (laughs) One more little line here. And then this is a friend. Then I spoke only once more to him and cannot remember my exact words, but I think my question was substantially this. You seem so near the brink of the dark river that I almost wonder how the opposite shore may appear to you. Then he answered, one world at a time. I mean, there's a wisdom that understands that death is part of the natural process. So there's no struggle, there's no fight, there's no fear. Because there's no holding on. This is our practice now. What we're practicing here is exactly the practice of dying. It's practicing letting go in each moment. The other story, and this is one of my favorites because it just points to an amazing wisdom and understanding. It was told of the 16th Karmapa, who's had the head of one of the great lineages and who has since been reborn, you know, and, and recently actually escaped from Tibet. But in his last incarnation, he had cancer. He was dying in Chicago. His body was a mess. You know, lots, lots of stuff going on. And he was dying. His disciples and students were very upset. You know, they were losing their beloved teacher. And at one point, as it's told, Uh, He turned to them and he said, don't worry, nothing happens. That's quite amazing. That's like realizing that even this great matter of life and death is like the story on the movie screen. And that from another perspective, nothing happens. So it just points to many possible dimensions of understanding when we're not so locked in to the apparent solidity and drama of our lives. So this is one reflection, the end of birth is death. The second reflection on impermanence, the end of accumulation is dispersion. 
You know, we spend so much of our lives accumulating so much junk <laughs> of all kinds. You know, it could be things, it could be projects, it could be whatever, whatever it is we accumulate. I was just speaking with Steve today on a walk we were taking. Something I've noticed both in my mother, who's now in her 80s, and quite a few people who are really in the end years of their lives, I notice in her and in others, there's this very natural, she just wants to get rid of things. You know, she just she wants to simplify her life and wants to get rid of all the stuff that she spent a lifetime accumulating. She wants to live in a simpler uh, living space. And in noticing this, you know, it seems like there's a natural wisdom in older people of realizing that all this stuff that often we put so much energy into in our lives, to collecting and accumulating for the most part, it's basically meaningless. It's not that it doesn't give us some joy and happiness, and I'm not suggesting, you know, necessarily to give everything away and live, you know, in a cave in the Himalayas. But it's really a question of understanding the wisdom of this and seeing where do we put our energy? You know, are we totally involved in this accumulation of whatever it is? Or do we understand the impermanence of it all? And enjoy what's appropriate, but not be tied up in it, not be entangled. The third of the reflections, the end of birth is death, the end of accumulation inevitably is dispersion. The end of all meeting is separation. One way or another, everybody that we meet, that we're close to, that we're in relationship to, one way or another, it is going to end in separation. Either people leave or they die. Something happens. And yet, how often do we get so entangled in our relationships that in the time of inevitable separation, it becomes a source of overwhelming sorrow? The Buddha gave a powerful image for this. He said that in the course of our countless lifetimes, we have shed more tears over separation from loved ones than there is water in all the great oceans. I mean, that's how powerful our attachments are, our entanglements are, and our sorrow is. Now, the feelings of loss and grief loss and sorrow, are probably natural for all of us. But the more we contemplate the truth of impermanence, that this is what happens, it's just the dharma, it's the law, it's how things unfold. The more we understand that deeply, the less likely we are to drown in that ocean of tears. We begin to hold it with a little more understanding, a little more spaciousness, a little more ease. We begin to explore, and this could be a whole other talk, just to kind of plant a few seeds. We can really begin to explore the difference, the profound difference between love and attachment. 
two very different states. Love is the energy of giving. Attachment is the energy of holding. And yet for most of us, love and attachment have become so inextricably bound up with one another. Very helpful to begin to sort that out. Begin to understand, we can explore the difference between grief and loss. Contemplating impermanence, the impermanence of relationships, the impermanence of our bodies, the impermanence of all our experience, it reorients us towards love and care rather than holding an attachment. It reorients us towards letting go rather than clinging. It really reorients us to the possibility of freedom. The Buddhists, among, among many teachings, there's one particular one that always struck me as being an amazingly radical commentary on our lives. He said that it's better to live for a single day deeply seeing the momentariness. And this is really at a stage of insight, the stage of arising and passing, where we're seeing very deeply and fully within ourselves the momentariness of phenomena. He said, it's better to live a single day to see the momentariness of phenomena in this vivid way than to live a hundred years without seeing it. Well, that's startling in terms of an assessment of what's of value in life. You know, all the things that we value so dearly. Buddha is saying, more valuable than a hundred years of all that is one day of seeing impermanence on this level. Why? Because it's through the seeing of impermanence that carefully, that deeply, that vividly, that becomes the seed of our freedom. So this is not an insignificant exploration. This is really the doorway. What grows from this ground of wisdom is a very rare flower. It's the, it's the rare flower of bodhicitta. Bodhijitta is a word in Sanskrit and Pali that's used in different Buddhist traditions. Bodhi means wisdom. Jitta is the word for heart and mind. And in, in Sanskrit and Pali, it's the same word, which is interesting. The heart-mind, so it's not that separation. Bodhijitta is the heart-mind of awakening. On the relative level, Bodhicitta means compassion. It means that aspiration to live our life and to do our practice to help alleviate the suffering of all beings. And Kamala talked beautifully last night about the power and the meaning and the expression of compassion in our lives. Bodhicitta 
One way that I like to practice this relative bodhicitta is to articulate that aspiration in the beginning and end of a sitting. So often, usually when I sit down, I'll express that aspiration, may I quickly be liberated for the welfare and benefit of all. Of course, we can use our own language for this, but it really sets the energy for our practice and it takes it out of a certain self-concern and it creates a very big frame. Now, whatever we're going through, you know, and all of the effort that we make, it can all be put in this very big and beautiful framework. Yes, what I'm doing, may it be for the benefit of all beings. Then at the end of the sitting, what I like to do is a dedication of merit with the aspiration of bodhicitta. And I came across one particular expression that really inspired me. May the merit of my practice, may the merit of this practice, be joined together with the merit of all the wholesome actions of the three times of past, present, and future. And so it feels like I'm adding my little drop to this vast ocean of all the wholesome actions of, of the three times. May the merit of this practice be joined to the merit of the wholesome actions of all three times, and together may it all be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, the liberation of all beings. And so somehow... It just feels like it's joining in with this great force of compassion. This is relative bodhicitta, the expression of this aspiration. Absolute bodhicitta is the nature of the wisdom mind itself. It's the mind of innate wakefulness, the mind free of clinging, the mind free of grasping, the mind that's not clinging to anything at all. It's expressed just in a few lines of T.S. Eliot. This is from, I believe it's from the Four Quartets. He talked of a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Condition of complete simplicity, complete openness, complete transparency, complete emptiness, whatever word we like to use, costing not less than everything. The mind that does not cling to anything at all. This is the absolute bodhicitta. And this really, this nature of mind, mind free of grasping, this condition of complete simplicity, this is the great mystery of our lives. Because when we look for it, there's nothing to find. When we look for this mind of wisdom, wisdom awareness, oh, there it is. (laughs) 
There's nothing to find. In that sense, it's like open space. And yet the knowing quality is there. There's a mathematician named Robert Kaplan, and he wrote a book on the history of zero, the number. And the title of the book, which completely captivated me, was The Nothing That Is. (laughs) That's it. And the first line of the book, he said, look at zero and you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. And I think that's a wonderful image or metaphor for the understanding of this absolute bodhicitta, the nature of the wisdom awareness mind. An image that describes the movement from ignorance to awareness or from delusion to wakefulness, which is what our practice is. We're practicing that move from being caught to being free. An image that describes that movement is the image of ice and water. Ice is solid. It's fixed. It represents the mind that is attached, that is grasping at something or other, the mind that is fixated on something, contracted. You could think of it as a Velcro mind. (laughs) You know, objects kind of come and go. We get stuck to them. What is it that we get stuck to? We talked a lot about getting stuck, getting attached, clinging to pleasant experiences. It's a common thing we get attached to. And the power of this is so strong. I'll just tell you one little story. It's somewhat trivial, but it points to the amazing power of desire for sense pleasure, even when the sense pleasure is minuscule. Again, this goes back to my time early on, not not so early, I had been in India for some time in my practice, been doing intensive meditation for months, and it was really in a good, deep, quiet space. You know, and the mind was very mindful and alert and vivid, and it's the kind of sitting where you think you're going to get enlightened any minute. (laughs) You know, it's like... Okay, it's... T- <laughs> so I'd be sitting, and it was like that. And then the tea bell rang. Now, tea in India in those days was a little cup of tea and two bananas about that big. <laughs> I mean, two tiny bananas. So I'm sitting there about to get enlightened. The tea bell rings, and I get this image in my mind of these (laughs) tiny little bananas. I couldn't believe it. Up off my seat. (laughs) The force of the desire, even for 
something so useless <laughs> was powerful enough. So don't underestimate the force of desire in the mind. You know, it takes continual attention, continual practice to really learn how to work with it, to come out of the grip of it at least for a while. We get attached to these sense pleasures, big and small, and it obscures, it makes the mind ice. We get attached. And we get attached to our views and opinions about things, even about things we don't really know about. (laughs) But it really doesn't stop us from having opinions. (laughs) And we get very attached to them. One Zen master, I think 18th or 17th century, 16th century, his name was Bankai. He had a wonderful line. He said, don't side with yourself. (laughs) That itself would be a great practice, you know, in relation to our opinions. We get attached, and this is, of course, at the heart of it, to the sense of self, to the sense of I. We get so identified with our bodies, our thoughts, our emotions, feelings. We contract in this prison of self. So this is ice, the image of ice, the contraction, the fixation of mind, the mind holding on, the mind grasping at anything. Water is fluid, it's open, there's movement. Water is the mind that's not attached, not clinging. It's completely responsive to circumstances. You know, it's like water flowing down a mountain. The water is completely responsive to the topography of the mountain. And it will find, given the topography, it will find the shortest way. The mind that is free of attachment, free of clinging, is totally responsive to circumstances. The good news in all of this is that water, the free mind, is none other than melted ice. So it's right here. We simply need to let go of the attachment, let go of the grasping, let go of the clinging. Because sometimes we think we're in the experience of water. Things are moving and flowing and fluid. But on more careful examination, we see that it's not really water, it's slush. (laughs) You know, because there are a lot of subtle attachments and increasingly subtle ones to subtle meditative pleasures. You know, where we think we're really open, but there's a kind of holding or fixation, just subtle energetic holdings, when in a moment when all of a sudden there's a spontaneous relaxation, we realize that we had been holding. Sometimes there's attachment to awareness itself. That becomes an attachment. So our practice, through the practice of mindfulness, of attention, of concentration, we keep on relaxing more and more, these subtle holdings, these subtle attachments, these subtle contractions of self. As we, as we realize this level of absolute bodhicitta, this open, empty, aware nature of mind, the wisdom mind, 
it in turn manifests as great compassionate responsiveness. And this is the great beauty and the great joy. There are two brief teachings. These are from the Tibetan tradition which express the understanding that compassion is the expression of emptiness. Compassion is the expression of wisdom. The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal. Just imagine, imagine that quality of crystal, a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. When you recognize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. This is the great union of wisdom and compassion. Through the seeing of impermanence on all the levels we discussed, through actually paying attention so that the experience is direct and vivid and alive for us, as we see the impermanence on all the levels, the mind lets go of grasping, lets go of clinging. As we let go of clinging, we experience, we touch the absolute bodhicitta, the nature of mind itself, the empty wisdom mind. The expression of that wisdom mind is compassion, that aspiration that our lives and our practice be for the benefit of all. So we water these seeds. We water the seed of wisdom. We, We water the seed of compassion. We water the seed of bodhicitta. I'd like to close with something Thoreau said about the power of a seed. Because it may be very small within us at the moment. Now this aspiration to live our lives for the benefit and welfare of all, that's big. That's a big, noble aspiration. We want to start small. We want to just plant the seed of the aspiration and water the seed and let it grow and let it flower by itself. What Thoreau said was, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there and I am prepared to expect wonders. We plant the seed and the seed flowers. This is our practice. This is what we're doing. Let's sit for a couple of minutes.
a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.